0: Assalamu alaikum rahim, Welcome everybody to an amazing Saturday session. Um, I think when they say third time's the charm, they're right because I've announced that we are going to Medina three times, or this will be the third time, and this hopefully is actually right. So we are making um, the hijrah. Finally, we finished Matapafun, Matapafin, um, excuse me, last Halakha and then this Halakha will be our first journey into Medina. It's really interesting because you know, as a convert, I mean, I it's it's hard to realize how ignorant you are and how little support you actually have from the community until way after the fact and maybe never I mean only really unless you get educated and so I never knew that there was a difference between Meccan and Medina surahs in terms of content in terms of style in terms of anything because I just really didn't know and I never really got the impression from the community that the Quran was really that much of a central deal so it's amazing you know when you come and you are um, now focused so intensely on learning every single surah and understanding like what this you know that that there's a unique moral message you know who who had ever heard that no no one because it's you know the first thing that you know we're the first ones that are talking about it like that and you know like i was struck i i was kind of scrolling through facebook um, and happened to see a picture of um, three women that um, were posted by an islamic center and they had just converted and, you know, I thought to myself, holy cow, they're starting this journey, what, what waits for them, what are they going to, you know, um, what are they going to encounter with the community, and, and how, you know, what are they going to learn, and what are people going to tell them, and it's, it's just, um, you know, it's a little bit bittersweet, right, I'm like excited that they, that people are still converting to Islam, because obviously it's such a difficult time. But then, you know, this journey does not get necessarily easier, and I just pray that that they will find sort of the, the, the right people and the right experiences, and hopefully, inshallah, they, they will come across the Suli Institute. I would reach out to them if I knew who they were, but um, anyway, so, um, you know, the the thing that um, I thought was, that I wanted to share, is, you know, we get nice little tidbits here from, from the Sheikh after hours. Um, and the thing that he pointed out, you know, about the Medinan suras as we enter is that, you know, if we thought that the Meccan suras were really special and unique in what we learned here through Project Illumin, the Medinan suras are going to be even more mind-blowing because every single sura um, not only um, has um, a legal component to it, but there's also a moral message that goes with it. So imagine now that we are about to enter, you know, a, a different approach, and I can't even say because I don't know, but that Medina and surahs will have a legal component and a moral component, and I cannot wait, and it made me think again, to go back to, this is my favorite English translation, and I had done this before, we had finished a surah, I don't remember which one it was, and I, I read, um, like afterwards, the little short description that comes at the very beginning of each chapter to just kind of compare what we had just learned you know this incredible halakha and then in comparison what we get when we get you know a very good english translation as far as they go you know they're, they're of, of the you know i've read a lot of different ones and this is one of my favorite ones um and just the incredible gap and so i just thought maybe i would do it again this time and um because as i said i i don't normally now read You know, I don't even bother to read the English translations before we get into these Halakas because I know that they really are not going to give me, you know, any preparation for what we learn here. But I thought it would be fascinating to see what it says and then compare where we end up. So this is translated Mutual Neglect. And uh, it's a Medinan Sura that gets its title from verse 9. The Sura opens with a description of God's power and knowledge, verses 1 through 4. The disbelievers are reminded at the end of those who at the end of those who believe sorry no, I think. The disbelievers are reminded of the end of those who disbelieved before them, in verses five and six, and their, their denial of the resurrection is strongly refuted in verse seven. The believers are urged to be wary but forgiving of the enemies they may have within their own families, verses 14 through 15, and warned to remain steadfast and to spend in God's cause in verses eight through 10 and 16 through 18. And that's it. I mean, to me, that sounds like just sort of a summary that you could sort of read and gather on your own, just reading through the surah. Um, and it doesn't sound like anything different from anything else in any other part of the Quran. Um, and it doesn't necessarily inspire you to, um, you know, get super excited about sacrificing your life. It's They're just reminders. This is from Quran.com. And it says for for this surah, the theme of the surah is um, an invitation to the faith and obedience to God and the teaching of good morals. And that's pretty much it. Um, I mean, it goes a little bit deeper in terms of the sequence of the verses, but there isn't anything that, to me, feels super unique. So I'm so excited to know um, what what we have in store. And I hope I'm right this time when I say welcome to Medina. <laughs> So, inshallah, um
1: Looking forward to another amazing session. In the name of Allah, the Most Gracious, the Most Merciful. Subhanallah alayhi ala azim walhamdulillahi robbi alamin. والصلاة والسلام على محمد خاتم وَأَنَا مَنِ اتَّبَعُهُ بِحْسَانٍ إِلَىٰ يَوْمُ الدِّينِ اللهم شرحي صدري وَيَسْرُ لِأُمْرِي وَحْلُوا الْعُقْدَةً مِنْ لِسَانٍ يَفْقَهُ قَوْلِي So inshallah today we are talking about surah Al-Taghabun um, A fairly short surah Now, Surah Ta um There are a couple of things that we should say at the very beginning to to help us place the surah. Um, we are actually There, there is. Most, a majority of authorities say that Surah Al-Taghabun was revealed in Medina. A minority, um, like Al-Dahaq and others, say that it was revealed in Mecca. So if it was revealed in Mecca, it would be the very um, very late in the Meccan period. And if it's revealed in Medina, there are a number of questions that come up. A number of authorities, among them Ibn Abbas and Ibn Zubair, Said that it was revealed at this critical uh, transition between Mecca and Medina, that it was half in in Mecca and half in Medina. Similar to Surah al that we spoke about. now, what the issue that comes up in terms of trying to place uh, a Taghabun is that we have a number of reports that tell us that Taghabun was revealed after Surah Al Tahreem. Um, but if it was revealed after Surah Al tahrim that would mean that is not an early Medina revelation. If it was revealed after Surat Al-Tahreem, then of necessity it would be after Surat Al-Baqarah, after Surat Al-Umran, um, it would be even after Surat Al-Hajj, Surat al um Al-Hujurat. So If these reports are accurate, that it is, it was revealed after Taĥrim, then it would be mid medinian surah. Um, so, you, if you are a a, if you're interested in the history of the Quran you are confronted with a very um, complex picture of narratives and narratives that don't jive with one another and there isn't really through simple study of chains of transmission a way to resolve this conflict the chains of transmission analysis by itself doesn't allow you to conclude. Well, no, I. It, it is, in fact, probably after the Surat al-tahrim, or um, or not. This then. Puts you in a situation where you basically have to look at the surah contextually. You have to look at various other reports, um, and especially as they relate substantively to the surah, and to try to figure out, at least to a reasonable degree, when the surah was revealed. In all likelihood, and as we go through the surah, I'll point out various reasons for for this conclusion. But in all likelihood, surah al taghavun in my view, was not revealed after the tahrim, as some of the reports say. Was not a mid medinian surah, um, but it also probably was not a late Meccan surah. I think that it was among the very early surah revealed uh, in Medina. It might have it might be in fact one of the surah that the first ayat were revealed in Mecca and then the rest were revealed in Medina. It's possible. Uh, Ibn Abbas says that that's the case and Ibn Zuberis says that that's the case um, but for a variety of reasons the, all the evidence if you try to read the, the various evidence as they relate to the substance of the surah itself it seems to indicate that Surah al taghabun was among the first revelations in Medina and this is precisely because or as one of the central reasons for this is that Surat al addresses a, a, a if you will an emotional uh, social crisis that occurs right or occurs because of the hijra and occurs as Muslims are committing themselves to the Hijra process and the type of problems that arose uh, because of of the Hijrah from Mecca and Medina and especially that many families broke up because of the Hijra. in many families the children converted to Islam, but the parents didn't, or the parents converted to Islam, but the children didn't, the wife converted, but the husband didn't, the husband converted, but the wife didn't, um, and so on. In many families, you know, you have one brother or one sister that converts, the rest didn't, and there is a critical decision to be made and that is whether you leave everything you've known, including your money, your property, everything, and perform the hijrah to join the prophet in Medina, It's a huge sacrifice, and it is a, has profound implications for the individuals involved and many of the reports that surround surah at give us a sense of the trauma that was caused precisely because of this as we will see inshallah okay the other thing about surah at-taghabun is that it is among the sur known as al musabbihat um, these are a series of sur that mm-hmm. begin with yusabbihu lillahi ma fis samawati wa ma ard That beginning uh... occurs when Surah al-Tagabun is, is number sixty-four so you have this is a the um... the Musabihat are, are fifty-seven, fifty-nine sixty-one, sixty-two and Surah al-Tagabun sixty-four and the way that the Quran is organized today It is the last surah among the musabbihat, often translated to English as the glorifiers. But basically, meaning that they all have that beginning, subhanAllah. But in terms of order of revelation, as opposed to order of organization, it is very likely that Surah at-taghabun is the first of the Musabihat, the surah that among the the Musabihat that comes after Taqabul is Surah Al-Hadid, um, which, as we will see, I mean, it, it, it in, inshallah in due course, as we go through the Musabihat the in due time, um, there is a logic and a reason for that. In Musabihat, generally speaking, all involve a lesson about um, a... A a hard, difficult, challenging sacrifice, and among the Musabahad the surah that we've done, if I remember correctly, is Al-Hadid, and if you recall in Al-Hadid, which again is among the early, um, Al-Hadid comes in and it, it and it has this powerful message that calls upon Muslims to understand that they have an obligation to be strong like steel. And as we said at the time, strong but flexible, and fla- strong but responsive to uh, pressure. In other words, uh, that they, they don't break with pressure, but they mold with pressure. Um, and subhanAllah, the musabbihat, generally speaking, all have that, that spirit, as we will see in shawallah. Okay. So, if we are correct that التغابن is a revelation at this critical juncture during the hijrah, either during the hijrah or shortly after the Hijra, And as we will see, the reports about what the, the circumstances surrounding the revelation of Surah al-Taghavun, um, uh, ends up being quite important for understanding the moral message of the surah. The other part is the rather um, intriguing and challenging um, title of the surah itself. So the name of the surah comes from the fact that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the final day as al taghabun calls it al taghabun taghabun is an intriguing concept because up to this point Tagabun was a word that was often used in business settings. And the word referred to the process of losing and winning in market dealings. And so if you got a good deal from someone, you would say, or if X got a good deal from from Y, you would say X Ghabana Y, Gaben. Gaben means they, they, they earned a good deal from them. Now, we know that Allah calls the final day a number of names. But each name is very meaningful. So, you know, when you say Yawm al it's called Yawm al because it's the day of uh, that in which people are resurrected. Um, but the word Taghavun, referring to the final day, was something that, Quranic commentators pause that, and as we will see, talked about um, with some detail. I'm going to actually um, with this sort. I'm going to start a bit on an unusual beginning, and that is to deal with the reports about the occasions for revelations, because as we will see, this will um, turn out to be quite important. So. There are many different reports, but among these reports is if, uh, one of the companions and the migrants, Al Af bin Malik Al Ashja'i, although again there are different versions for the, the reports of Al Ashja'i, he complains to the Prophet, والسلام, that after he did the hijrah, he complains about jafa'u ahli, which means that his family, Jaffa ahl would mean that his family had stopped communicating with him, stopped dealing with him, stopped talking to him. Um, at a minimum his family is called to him but normally if you say Jaffa'ul Ahl, it means that his family is affirmatively upset at him and unfriendly towards him. And in these set of traditions we are typically told that after al Asja'i complains to the Prophet about his family disowning him or angry at him or whatever that surat at taghabun is revealed. Other reports come again in different uh, versions, but the gist of these reports is all quite um, there is a there is central core to, to all the different versions of these reports. Is that when Muslims performed the Hijrah and especially after the prophet, and Abu Bakr left uh, Mecca to Medina and of course, as we know, they, they were for, followed shortly after by Ali ibn Abi Talib, who had stayed behind to sleep in the Prophet's bed and uh, provide a cover and mislead those who were pursuing the Prophet and trying to kill him. Now, Muslims who had remained behind in Mecca, we were under a tremendous amount of pressure to catch up with the Prophet in Medina. Now you had to choose sides, even if before it was possible not to choose sides. But there were a number of Muslims who emotionally very much wanted to join the Prophet in Medina but their problem was that their families it pressured them by appealing to them not not coercing them not as some families did imprisoning and torturing their relatives to prevent them from doing the hijrah to Medina, but rather this class of people, these group of Muslims, um, their wives or their children or who, whoever it was, depending on the case, and, and we have many different scenarios, but all of the scenarios basically go back to the same thing, is that their loved ones would say, don't leave us, if you leave us, we will be lost. Don't go to Medina, either we will be forced to come with you, and we're not Muslim, and, but if we come with you and we're not Muslim, we are in a hostile environment, and Besides, we're going to have to leave all our property behind in Mecca because that's the condition that the Meccans uh, set, is that you can leave as long as you leave everything you own behind. Or, we are not going to go with you, but if you leave us, then you've betrayed our love and you've betrayed our trust and you betray. We are going to starve, we're going to... Um, have no protector, we're not going to have a supporter, etc. etc. And emotionally, some Muslims, because of this emotional pressure, some Muslims remain behind. But this is not what we are told is the occasion for the revelation of Surah Taqabun. The occasion, however, is that after remaining behind these Muslims found it increasingly um, just uh, untenable or even perhaps uh, their conscience bothered them or for whatever reason they eventually decided that they're gonna make the break and they're gonna migrate. And when they migrated to Medina, they, because they're latecomers, they were already, we said that they had to leave all their property behind, so they're financially in a very difficult situation. But being latecomers, they were even in a more difficult situation because those who came on early, they were initially worker, welcomed by the Ansar. There were, you know, many Ansar who at least, you know, were, were uh, uh, um, acted as hosts. Uh, shared their wealth with the migrants, but for the late comers, um, things were very different. There was some social ostracism. What took you so long? They found that already those who had migrated with the Prophet ﷺ have situated themselves in Medinian society, the constitution of Medina was already drafted. There were already those who took the first bay'ah and as latecomers, they started resenting the families that held them back. What's very interesting is that then those latecomers started saying things that, that they're, they're going to disown their family members that they left behind in Mecca, most of them who had not converted to Islam, or that they will no longer financially help the family members that they left behind in Mecca that they're gonna if they're if they make any money, if in fact they earn something that they're not gonna help the the family members that they left back in Mecca. And here is where the intervention of Surah al Taghabun is quite surprising. Because Surah al Tagabun affirms a warning about how a family could, in fact, mislead its loved one. But at the same time, commands those Muslims not to sever ties with the families that held them back, not to disown them, and not to cut them off financially. So we'll see how it does that yusabbihu lillahi ma fi s-samawati wa ma fi mulku wa lahu hamdu wa huwa ala kulli shay'in qadir like so the, the surahs known as the Musabihat, the beginning is with the pronouncement of Allah's oneness and singularity in existence, but whether by the mere fact of being, every being without the ability to choose glorifies Allah by existing. in the medieval mind, they were often thinking about, well, it must be that they have a way of saying SubhanAllah, it's just that, like they actually articulate the language, like they they say the word SubhanAllah, but we just don't understand the language. And that medieval conception is the one that so many modern Muslims ironically copied from the past to the modern age. But as so many other scholars said that when Allah says that you don't understand their tasbih is that the very fact that something does not have the choice the mere fact of its level of existence and its level of consciousness it attests to its maker and it glorifies its maker that doesn't necessarily mean that a cat or a dog has its way of saying subhanallah when it meows or barks or whatever but the very fact of its existence and its instinctive coding is the tasbih of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. The very instinct that guides, we have in, a, in our front yard, I noticed um, a uh, chipmunk. And it's very interesting. You see, this chipmunk instinctively, you know collecting the nuts and hiding and running and doing, very busy, and but it's all instinct. And when you sit and you reflect on the activity of this chipmunk monk long enough, you clearly see that everything it does, its very life is tasbih lillah What else is it? I mean, if you reflect on it, this is a being acting out of instinct in a very deliberate and purposeful fashion. How could it not be a tasbih in everything that it does? It is only those who are endowed with volition are the ones that can refrain, can deny what their existence is and say, I choose for my existence not to be a tasbih. Everything else is innately what it is. And that is precisely why when we refrain from the tasbih, we are going against nature, and that's precisely why it's a crime, because you are saying everything that I am coded to be. Well, I am. I choose to be ungrateful, and I choose not to recognize anything other than a dahr. A dahr means time, nature for its own sake, and the dahriya as theologians. Far better than I am, have said. That the Dahriya is it is insolent. It's the dahriya is those who who believe in just a time as the creator of all. Without anything, there is just a big void beyond the existence of time. Um. Okay. So if you only understood everything by being what it is coded as it is is in fact glorifying Allah Subhanahu wa ta'ala whether on earth or in the heavens lahu <laughs> mulk wa hamd wa huwa qadir to God is all Hamd, gratitude, and praise, and mulk, sovereignty, and it is God who is capable of everything. This is an introduction very similar to all the sort of al musabbihat Okay. So, God is the one that created you. Remember the beginning, as we said, is without volition there is the tasbih. By the mere fact of existence. But with human beings, it's different. God is the one who created you. And with creation came your volition, your choice. And because you have choice, there are of you, some of you, who are kufar, deny what they owe God or deny the relationship they have with God through the mere fact of existence in a state of kufr, in a state of denial and ingratitude. And then there are those of you who choose to believe. and in both cases Allah is fully aware of what you do now this ayah just as a passing remark in the old days meaning in the first centuries of Islam was among the most heated debates, it was one of the loci, loci for heated debates between the Mu'tazila and the Ash'ariyah. The Um, rationalist school that said that Allah, when Allah creates Allah the, the actions of human beings are created by human beings. So if you choose to be a believer you are creating the act of belief. And if you choose to be an unbeliever you are creating the act of unbelief. And the who basically said that, no, what you do is kesb. What you do is you acquire what Allah has created. So Allah creates the choice of belief and the choice of unbelief. And you simply acquire what Allah has created. Does it make a practical difference? It depends. It makes a big difference if, what the Mu'tazilis are saying because they completely rejected predestination. It makes a difference as to what type of Ash'ari you are because some Ash'aris ended up exactly like a lot of Ahl al Hadith who believed in predestination over most things. Uh, While other Ash'aris leaned very much nearly identical to the Mu'tazila in rejecting the idea of predestination. So, you'd, unfortunately, you will find in the tradition a hadith, and unfortunately, because our teachers of the Qur'an are usually ill-educated and not very intelligent, because unfortunately this field doesn't attract the most intelligent students, um, not like the past you know, in, in, in the modern age it's usually the, the, the failures, the uh, the people that flunk out of school, the people who don't have can't compete in the market, can't. you know, are the ones that go into Quranic studies. That's just the reality sadly. Why am I saying this? Because in the tradition you will find some ahadith that would the Islamophobes love they love they ate, they eat these ahadiths up. They search our traditions to just like find these ahadiths and they literally get, you know, uh, 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 probably they faint with excitement when they find them. And unfortunately, these same ahadiths are the ones that completely alienate young Muslims. And these ahadiths typically say something like, oh, when Allah created creation, Allah created people for hellfire. And Allah created people for heaven. And those who were created for hellfire will live their life. They will try to do whatever they try to do. At the end, they're going to end up in hellfire. And those who were created for heaven, whatever they try to do, at the end, they're going to end up in heaven. And so it sounds like very unjust, very cruel, very nonsensical. And of course, no one bothers with what is the story of these hadiths, where do they come from, what, what, why are they found in collections like Bukhari or Muslim, because Bukhari and Muslim themselves were subjects of, or, or the results of certain political and social and socio political disputes in the early Muslim Ummah. So it's you know it's not just that they were just objective uh, reporters of hadith. Anyway, but most theologians, most commentators on the Quran, at least from the classical period, like people like al-Razi, or even people, um, even people like Ibn Kathir and and uh, knew enough to say, you know, these hadiths can't be relied on. And this is precisely why the fatalist school or the school of predestination was never the mainstream or the school of orthodoxy in Islam. Uh, Not until the modern age where you started hearing the school of predestination come back again and try to spin itself as the main stream of Islam. But if you knew the story of predestination in Islamic history, it was never, this, the, pre, the, the predestination school has, has always been on the margins of Islamic theology. Why am I saying all of this? Because of this expression. There are those of you who are kufar and those of you who are believers. If you are among the school of predestination, you'd say, yes, so those of you from the moment of creation, God destined them to be kuffar and God destined them to be believers. But if you are in the mainstream of Islam, say that, that God created you and there are those of you who chose to be kuffar and those of you who choose to be believers. Okay. خلق والأرض بالحق وصوركم فأحسن صوركم al Masir. God created the heavens and heavens the, the heavens and earth bilhak. Now, bilhak would, in literal translation, would be in truth or according to truth but repeatedly in the Quran Allah time and time again tells us that Allah created the heavens and earth in truth or according to truth there's a big philosophical issue Because if Allah, and and I'm I'm not going to bore you with, you know, a long philosophical discussion, but I'm just giving you the, is that when Allah says, Allah created the heavens and earth in truth, well, is there a standard of truth outside Allah that Allah can then reference to justify the statement that the heavens and earths have been created according to truth or in truth or to fulfill truth. Most Muslim theologians said no, there is no standard outside Allah. So what does it mean to say Allah created the heavens and earth bilhaq and you can be among the mutakallimun and have a long philosophical, logical justification for what I'm just about to tell you but that the only coherent meaning of this is that Allah created the heavens and earth consistent with Allah's notions of justice and Allah's principle of justice. And hence, It would be a contradiction if Allah would have created the heavens and earth and then robbed the heavens and earth of the principle of justice. But the principle of justice mandates accountability. So when Allah tells us Allah created the heavens and earth, Bil Haqq, that there is a standard given to us as to what is good and what is bad. And accountability and responsibility and justice is good. And the opposite of that is bad. Just to, again, I often tell you that our ancestors took the Quran far more seriously than we did. There's a theologian who comments about um, um. Who theologians who comments about the concept of Wal Bil and I didn't write in my notes who the theologian was but and I try, I couldn't remember who I was reading I have suspicions it, it it's either Ghazali or might even be someone like Ismail Haqqi the Quranic commentator. But anyway, so he says that if we understand the notion of Haqq and the creation of heavens and earth according to Haqq, then we would understand that whoever takes the responsibility of governing, of ruling, then that individual is na'ib lil min warai hijab that this person becomes a, a an agent or a deputy not for Allah but a deputy of al-haq, of the principle of truth and justice but mean what about hijab because that, that's what makes me think that maybe it's Haqqi Haki, because he's the one that would use the hijab language but behind behind a veil. So from there he goes on to say that a ruler who is just even if not a Muslim is a khalifatullah fil ard, and a ruler who is unjust, even if a Muslim cannot be a khalifatullah on al-ard, and in fact is among ikhwan al-shayateen. So what he's saying is that a a just ruler, because of the principle of justice, that person is a khalifa for God on earth, even if that person is not a Muslim. But a Muslim ruler who is unjust is not a khalifa for Allah, he's a khalifa for shaitan on earth again our ancestors took the quran far more seriously i mean it's and when was the last time you read an orientalist talk about this revolutionary idea and that's not you know an outlier by the way in the islamic tradition statements like this and and Arguments like this the idea that if you are an unjust Muslim Then you're off the you're demonic. You're not godly the fact that you call yourself Muslim. It it doesn't matter Because but when Allah gives us a standard for morality and he calls the standard al haq It doesn't mean that we are free to then you know, dress up any injustice or any misery or any oppression into the garb of Islamicity and say, here you go, this is what Allah meant by haqq. No, that's not then a, a, a moral system, that's just absolute chaos, which is, again, what modern Muslims, unfortunately, do all the time. They seem to think that, well, Islam is not about anything other than just a bunch of prayers and fasting and hajj and things like that without a purpose, without a cause. Although, how many times Allah uses the word haqq in the Qur'an? I mean, how how many of these, again, it's not just that you've gone to Azhar, but the methodology of your training. How broad is your reading? How lively is your intellect? How intelligent is your thinking? Are all factors, you, you know. If you have the best memory in the world, but you have no analytical powers, you are not going to be a good scholar. I was just recently, someone told me, this sheikh, is an Egyptian guy, this sheikh, this and this and this is amazing. You you should, you should um, see what he says about Surah at taghabun Allah, Allah is my witness. I could not handle more than the first 10 minutes just because of the lack of, not just ignorance, but even the lack of respect for his subject. The amount of burping and yawning and sounds that this guy was emitting as if he's sitting in his living room with his family, you know, over a social event, not dealing with a scholarly subject on the Quran and the respect due to the educational process. I just turned it off. I said, I'm not gonna listen to to, to someone who doesn't know how to respect his audience, doesn't respect his subject, doesn't respect... I mean, other than the fact that it was all regurgitation of memorized material, you could tell exactly what text he's memorized, but no attempt to analyze or integrate or think through what he's regurgitating but you know, that's really anyway. Okay. okay. Oh, the other thing. So So Khalk Samawat will art And then wasawarakum for Astanasuwarakum. Now the only the, we've seen this before, right? That where Allah told us that Allah perfected your creation your um normally it's, it forms okay yeah the study quran says made your forms most beautiful um there is there is a discussion as to when Allah says in this context, صوركم, Is Allah saying that we've made you, you human beings in the most beautiful form or is Allah talking about all beings? That they were created in the most beautiful form, and this is a, a, a lively debate. Um, there is also a a, and this is among the evidence that that Surah the Ha is an earlier surah because it is always the the um, the place where. You have a debate as to when Allah says that Allah created beautiful forms. Um, What, if any, standard is there for this beauty? And typically, in this context, so many of the tafsir will say, "Let me try to find the, the exact language." I think I, yeah, that there are two things that have no ceiling: al-jamal wal beauty and wisdom whatever you do you can't say i've reached the ultimate in it beauty al-jamal wal and wisdom um but you have and i, I don't want to you know get too much into it in, in this context but you have some very interesting discussions about Why, when Allah says that your forms have been beautified, that how we go about understanding the relation of beauty to haq, to truth, and this is a a, a topic I'm just I'm gonna flag. Maybe if we have time, if you're interested, you can ask in the Q&A about it. So, Allah knows what is in the heavens and in the earth. And Allah knows what you conceal and what you display. And Allah knows what is in your conscience, what is in your hearts, what is in your chest. So Allah's knowledge of what simmers inside of us is total and complete. أَلَمْ يَأْتِكُمْ نَبَأُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا مِنْ قَبْلُ فَزَاقُوا وَبَالَ أَمْرِهِمْ وَلَهُمْ عَذَابٌ أَلِيمٌ ذَلِكَ بِأَنَّهُ كَانَتْ تَأْتِيهِمْ رُسُلُهُمْ بِالْبَيِّنَاتِ فَقَالُوا أَبَشَرٌ يَهْدُونَنَا فَكَفَرُوا وَتَوَلَّوا وَاسْتَغْنَ اللَّهُ وَاللَّهُ غَنِيٌّ Hamid. So that rhetorical question, haven't you heard or don't you ponder, don't you reflect upon those who received the message before you, but turned away now, see how this is five. And the study Quran says they tasted the evil consequence of their affair, which I mean it's it's quite literal, but the phrasing here. Is that they suffered the consequences of their own lack of moral purpose, their own lack of um, moral meaning in life. So because it it doesn't say haven't you heard as the Quran does in many other places haven't you heard about those who turned away from our messages it says haven't you heard about those who have lived in kufr lived in kufr could mean at the very minimum is that they refuse to be grateful to Allah or refuse to believe in Allah but أمرهم, usually that expression means that their own moral failures did them in so their kufr is that they turned away exactly from what Allah starts in Surah Al taghabun with. They turned away from being anchored in that all of this creation exists in it glorifying its Maker. They, they don't see creation as glorifying its maker. They see creation as there by coincidence or as there for their exploitation, for their use. Creation has no right beyond their use. You're there as long as you serve me. And if you don't serve me, I don't need you. So that's one. But two, they also ignored the central purpose of al-Haqq in a samawat wal-Ard. Their kufr is that they've turned away from a meaning for existence, and they turned also away from creating justice at the core of existence. And so what did them in, what did them in is their moral, moral failures. Or, as some have put it, their, their, the absence of immoral anchor in the first place. It's not that they have immorality and they betrayed the morality, but they weren't sure that they needed immorality in the first place. Now, of course, in medieval. Commentaries they'll point to things like child sacrifices or you know like the the gruesome practices of some of the old tribes uh, as evidence of that but this is m- much broader than any specific historical example, whether it involves child sacrifices or any type of existence without moral. Clarity as to why you exist and what is the anchor for existence. Okay. ذلك بأنهم كانت تأتيهم fakalu, فقالوا أبشر واستغنى الله والله غني حميد. So they were receiving the bayinat, bayinat are the, the the messages. Now the messages could be either a revelation like the Torah or the Injil or, or could be whatever proofs or whatever arguments the messengers of Allah were bringing. Okay. But notice here that their response is Abasharun nana. which effectively, why should we listen to you when you are just human beings like us? Their problem, why if if you refuse to listen to a fellow human being and you turn away regardless of the message that this human being is carrying, What would that tell you? Well, it tells you that normally the person that you refuse to listen to is not among the elite, is not a person of power, because if it was a person who had power or a person who had wealth, you would have not turned away. The reason that you turn away is that you look down at the messenger and you say, well... Why should we listen to you? And because of that attitude, they thought that they are self-sufficient, if you will, or they can do without the message. I'm looking for the translation for Stagnallah to see what the study Quran does with it. Um, wait, uh, this is six. Yet God was um, The study Quran says. Yet God is beyond need. Muhammad Asad says, God for God is self sufficient. Okay, the the reason I'm I'm not so excited about the translations is was There is in the Tafsir a a long discussion. That, and it has to do with grammar as to why that form where Allah says الله, it is not God saying and God is self-sufficient or God is beyond need but it is in an active verb form which, which says and God if you, if you, um, it says, if you would take it very literally, it's as if it reads like, and God became, and God did without them. But obviously, that's not what it's saying, because it can't be, God is saying, so I did without him because God doesn't need them in the first place. So this make a long story short that there is a, a considerable discussion as to what precisely that expression, what Allah means. And most, the, the best opinion And the one that makes sense grammatically and linguistically is that when Allah says it means that what they did by refusing to listen to anything obviously it doesn't add or take away from Allah but that Istighna Allah in this situation or in this context means that Allah left them to their choices so Allah could have forced them to be like the like the rest of existence glorifying Allah but in fact, Istignaullah, Allah's self sufficiency, if you will, meant in this situation what Allah consistently does with human beings, and that is to say, Well, I will give you the right to choose and to act upon their choices, and I will coerce you towards nothing. So, it is up to you whether in fact you believe or not believe. And we will see that this is quite important for Surah at taghabun Okay. So, Then, that the, the, the critical point about accountability, that those who, the, the critical issue that human beings keep coming back to time and time again, the heart, the rub of the matter, for so many people is when all is said and done is that they are, have the hardest time accepting the basic idea of resurrection and accountability at resurrection. <laughs> عَلَى That the basic claim is it's not possible we're going to be resurrected and confront the consequences of what we've done. And the response, this is one of three times that the Quran uses this style where Allah swears by Allah's self or Allah effectively as if telling the, the Prophet ﷺ, or telling believers to swear by Allah no indeed by God you will be resurrected and you will confront what you've done and if you only realized that this is a very simple matter for God to you it's a very big deal but for God wadhālika 'alallāhi yasīr that it is the easiest thing for God to do okay so the appeal the reminder here fa'āminū billāhi wa rasūlihi wan-nūri alladhī anzalnā wallāhu bimā ta'malūna khabīr so believe in God and God's prophet and the light that God has sent you. Now, typically in Quranic Tafsir, they tell you and the light means and the Quran that God sent. And of course the Quran is light, but the meaning I think is beyond that as well. The whole theme as we will see in Surah Al-Taghabun is the absolute, um, if you will, the absolute lack of clarity in the absence of realizing that God's creation. is glorifying God by its mere fact of existence. And that choice given to human beings is exercised with a remarkable exception is that human beings have the choice not to glorify, not to thank, not to glorify, but with that comes the imperative of justice. And with justice, the imperative of accountability. No accountability, no justice. Now, obviously, with that comes the responsibility of choice, the responsibility of volition. And being anchored in this realization is being anchored in moral awareness so much moral awareness that as we said, some theologians said, that a non-Muslim ruler who is just is Allah's khalifa, while a Muslim ruler who's not a just is the khalifa of shaitan. Okay. Now, so it is that moral awareness that gives you meaning in life and that will explain to us in a second why allah calls the day the final day the day of the and we'll see all the struggles in translating that word the but note if you take this logic to its logical conclusion you get take this rational to its logical conclusion If existence, and ex- or I should say, not if, but existence without God is darkness. You exist in a dark universe, we are surrounded by darkness all over, around us, everywhere in the universe. In fact, as we know scientifically now, that dark energy and dark matter and so on is the vast majority of space. And... <laughs> You know, even what we call light that comes from stars and whatever, whatever the, the, the combustion of energy and hydrogen and so on, it is such a small percent of what the universe is. So you're in existence surrounded by a great deal of darkness without moral clarity layers of darkness. As Allah puts it elsewhere, darkness upon darkness. Accepting Allah's message and the clarity of what, of the clarity of Haq, that is at the heart of creation is the light that Allah sends. It's like in the midst of this darkness, you, you see the light that comes and if you have your head on straight it is the lifeline sent to you by your maker that lifeline is god's light wal nur anzalna wallahu bima ta'maluna okay now يَوْمَ يَجْمَعُكُمْ لِيَوْمِ الْجَمْعِ ذَلِكَ يَوْمُ التغابل. So, the day that Allah gathers you for the day of Jama, the day of the gathering, right? And then, so the day is the day of the gathering. But then Allah says, Now, grammatically, if you know Arabic grammar, this this, this sort of catches your attention. Because Allah didn't say that Yom al-Qiyama, Yom al Allah described Yom al-Jama as yawm al So, when you have a word describing the day of the gathering, i.e., the day of the hereafter, Qiyama, then you say, okay, so that's a descriptive term. That's not a proper name. That's a description of the day of the gathering. So why does Allah describe the day of the gathering as the day of the Gabun? Okay. So, <clears throat> we already said that We already said that the it was used in the context of market dynamics and usually in the context of loss and profit. And the word ghabana would usually means, I earned a profit off ex-fellow, and so you would say Ghabintu. Muhammad means I earned the profit of Muhammad. And as I said, that calling or describing the day of the gathering, Yawm al as the day of Taghabun caught the attention of Commentators now there are some hadith, <clears throat> um, but I mean they're they're not of um, they're not authentic or they they don't have an authentic, so so it's uh, brother that spent time on them on okay. so when used in the context of saying a day is a day of taghabun it has one possible meaning if you say that day is the day of taghabun well superficially it means it's the day of loss and profit some people will profit but some people will lose but more, but that is only the, the most literal, and that's not the, the as just you know, the, the many point out that it is the day of turbulent positioning of status due to loss and profit. So what, so what does that mean? It means that this is the day that if you've lived your life on earth subservient to X, Y, and Z, you go in the hereafter, and you find that your position now is far superior to X, Y, and Z. Then you would say you you have done כובן to X, Y, and Z. You upstaged, in other words. So you could put it differently. It is the day of upstaging. It is the day where all types of people are going to be upstaged from the top going to the bottom, and people who were at the bottom going to the top. It is the day where it's going to be major reshuffling of the papers. And when you understand it in that sense, you can't find a word that is more perfect to describe the reshuffling of status and position than Yabun. It is like slapping you in the face by saying, think, Because this is the day where those of you who think that you're in a secure position, you're of a high status on earth, there is going to be a major reshuffling uh, that will be taking place in the hereafter. All types of people are going to be going from the status that they've been accustomed to to the bottom and people who were bottom on earth that will go the on high among the things that i've read i, I, I remember i think it was a sufi um, text but again i you know I didn't write down where I read it and I couldn't remember but but I read it in, in a number of places so it must have been a, a common lesson that in in pre-modern Islam about Yawm al-Taghabul is, is um, where the life on earth is described as a madgar and a mazra and a and what that means is that it's a mudgar, It's a day, it's a life on earth. It's an opportunity for you to buy the right things and sell the right things. Make the type of deals. Mudgar means a market. So uh, make the types of deals that earn you the right hassanat in the hereafter. It's a Mazra because it's the opportunity to plant the right types of deeds that would earn you the right fruits in the hereafter. Buy the right thing, plant the right thing, and meslek, life on earth, is not just buying the right things and planting the right things, but it is walking the right road. It is not getting lost in paths, left and right and up and down or whatever, that ultimately have nothing to do with haqq. It is choosing the path of hak, of truth. And if you say, "Well, what is truth?" It is the path of justice, wherein is the path of justice is the path to God. And walking that path, and what this just stayed with me, you know, over the years that if you reflect. On the matjar, the, the market, what you purchase in life, and the mazra, what you plant in life, and the maslaq, the path you take in life, your attitude towards life becomes quite different. So, be- before we break for Maghrib, note that after Allah tells us that this is the Aumut there's a quick reference as we are accustomed to from the Quran by this stage that those who do right will have their reward with Allah and those who do wrong will have their punishment with Allah الَّذِينَ <laughs> They are in hellfire, and the worst of fate. Um, so this takes us to verse ten. After realizing that, or telling us that, that the the day of the gathering, Yom is going to be a day of great Upheaval, particularly great days of displacement in status. Um, Then this is followed immediately with ما أصاب من مصيبة إلا بإذن الله. وَمَا يُؤْمِن بِاللَّهِ يَهْدِي قلبه وَاللَّهُ بِكُلِّ شَيْءٍ So, and again, I'll wait till the end to put it all together, but immediately this is followed by a reminder that whatever calamity, hardship, disaster befalls you, then you should remember it that this is only possible with allah's permission that, that allah allowed it to befall you but then وَمَنْ يُؤْمِنْ بِاللَّهِ, فيه... ومن يؤمن بالله يَهْدِي قلبه. this is 11, 11 let me see how they translate this the study quran says uh, and whoever believes in god he guides his heart <laughs> okay وَمَا يُؤْمِن بِاللَّهِ يَهْدِ it is not whoever believes in God Allah guides their heart the form of Yahdi here means that whoever believes in Allah and believes or gives effect or in fact carries out the realization the conviction that whatever disaster calamity hardship that befalls you is through Allah's permission that if you have that belief then Allah Comforts your heart, and this is why when the Prophet is asked about this ayah, this is where the Prophet says the very famous uh, statement about believers: in wa in wa in That for a believer if they're afflicted with hardship they persevere they're patient and persevere and they if they enjoy blessings and are given they're grateful and are thankful to Allah and if they are treated unjustly they forgive so that Yahdi qalba means all of these: gratitude for being given, perseverance and patience when being before loss or when afflicted, and forgiveness when treated wrongfully. Okay. And then this is followed with Wa اللَّهُ وَأَطِعُ Rasul, Obey Allah and obey the Prophet فَإِنْ تَوَلَّيْتُمْ فَإِنَّمَا عَلَى رَسُولِنَا الْبَلَاغُ الْمُبِيلِ And if you fail to obey and you turn away then know that the duty of this Prophet is simply to notify, is simply to teach. The Quran from the, the, uh, the Quran in Medina generally, the, all the surah of Medina repeat that theme of consistently counseling Muslims to obey the Prophet. Because here there is a very practical issue. And that is that city-state that Muslims have created in which the Prophet is the leader of the city-state. But as anyone who has attempted to create a polity after a revolution would tell you, the hardest thing is to actually do exactly what the Qur'an does, and that is to say, but if you turn away, then this is just a messenger. Because if you study revolutions, revolutionary movements go through a period where they need to instill their authority in the minds and hearts of people. And the only way that revolutionary movements have done that through history is through a great deal of violence. The Islamic prophetic Muhammadian revolution is the only revolution I am aware of that is executed without a great deal of violence to create a new authority structure. After the death of the prophet, that's something else. And, but it is a testament to the charisma, to the blessings, to the miracle of that. Of that. Is that as the prophet was alive, this is a revolution that was carried out in Medina without mass executions of opponents or jailings or, or whatnot. Okay. Allahu la ilaha illa huwa wa ala Allahi faliyatawakkal mu'minun ya ayyuhal ladheena amanu إن من أزواجكم وأولادكم عدوا لكم فاحذرون وإن تعفوا وتصفحوا وتغفروا فإن الله غفور رحيم إنما أموالكم وأولادكم فتنة والله عنده أجر عظيم فاتقوا الله ما استطعتوا واسمعوا وأطيعوا وانفقوا خيرا لأنفسكم ومن يوق شح نفسه فأولئك هم المفلحون so this is now from 12 to 16. So, with the interlude that this is Allah, no God but Allah, la ilaha illahua, wala life al on Allah the believers must rely. Then it comes to the central theme of Surah al So indeed it affirms that, be mindful that it is indeed possible that among those who are your who are for for all practical purposes are hostile to you are enemies to you are your children or your spouses and so towards them be cautious now we know from the context of Surah at-taghabun that, as we said, that there are these Muslims who, because of the influence of their families, they delayed in the Hijrah, and once they did join the Prophet ﷺ in the Hijrah. Their emotions became, um, let's put it this way, they experienced quite turbulent emotions. They were resentful towards the fact that their families had held them back. A question and a debate that was taking place in Medina is about these, my children, my wife, my husband that did not convert to Islam and do not approve of what I'm doing, do not approve of the fact that I'm in Medina, and do not approve of... But what are they to me? A... One strong orientation that an orientation that is compounded by what will lead up to open warfare hostility between those who remained in Mecca and those who are in Medina is that, well, they are nothing to me. And that was a strong orientation espoused by a lot of hotheads is that well, they're your enemies. You must think of them of your, as your enemies. They are nothing to you. Your children, you should disown them. You should have nothing to do with them. You're not responsible for them financially or otherwise. And first, the Quran affirms the fact that indeed, Your biggest challenge in your life could be the person you're married to. And indeed, the biggest challenge in your life could be your children. Not just in their time, but generally because so many people, the reason they fail, the lesson, of as Allah puts it in verse 15, that your money and your children are fitna. The reason they they are a test, the reason they fail that test is because they turn away from their Islamic duties and their excuses: I have to take care of my family. So there are two parts to this. Verse 14 talks about those who are your enemy, لكم, who are actually hostile to your project. Like those who took a hostile position towards their family member migrating to Medina and joining the prophet and it will escalate into open warfare. But, more broadly, Allah comes and says, realize that your money and your children could very well be a fitna, or are in fact a fitna, a test. Okay, now, as to those in Medina, It comes in and it tells the hotheads of Medina that their attitude towards the hostility of their own family members is, notice, ta'fu, watasfahu, watagfiru three things. Tafu. To forgive. Tosfah is a greater level of forgiveness. While is even a greater level of forgiveness. So, it's like saying, forgive, forgive, forgive. By this, all those who said we are going to disown their cho- our children were told no don't disown your children all those who said we're going to disown our parents were told no don't disown your parents all those who said that i no longer will take care of my children financially although their children were kuffar they're command was no you have to continue taking care of them financially all those who said I no longer care about my mother or father after all Allah knew that they were going to meet in battle and there were going to be some who were going to actually kill their relatives but defending yourself in battle against a hostile family member is one thing But a feeling of animistic hostility that leads to disowning and discontinuing financial obligations is another. One you are doing one thing in warfare is something out of necessity. But this is immoral position. So, so that's as to the migrants of Medina. It sides with the calmer heads, not the hot heads. And as Ghadari says, that this attitude of teaching the migrants of Af wa safh, wa In fact, not for all of them but for some of the major figures is precisely what eventually led the estranged family members to come to Islam when they saw that although they were maligning their, you know, their brother or their father or their son or whatever and the response of their, lo- of their family member who had gone to join the, the Prophet is I forgive you and I'm praying for your guidance eventually for some families that actually led to them converting to Islam the beautiful way As to the verse 15 that realizing that yes among the the most serious fitan for a human being who wants to live a purposeful life committed to the path of Allah that in fact It is often the hardest tests are those that come from family members. And I had a a quote if I I don't know if I I marked it or not. Anyway, I'll just, um, the quote I had is that that how many people they had they carried Islam as a cause on the shoulder until they got married and had, and had children. And once, they've had, once they got children, instead of understanding that these children are a gift from Allah, but not an excuse to abandon all their Islamic projects, they in fact did quite the opposite. And their entire life became simply, whether using their children as, ex- as an excuse, or in fact, basically living to not serve Allah or serve Islam, but just serve their children. And convincing themselves that they're serving Islam through serving their children. So I'm serving Islam through my children. But their children are not necessarily Islamic anything. In fact, quite often, their children grow up spoiled. Spoiled brats. Because they've had their parents provide for them everything. And it's an entire fallacy. And this is why Allah follows it in the way that we will see in a second. Okay. So uh, let's put that inside for a second, but the other part of verse sixteen was So in fact your response to this fitna is if you in fact listen to what Allah is saying and obeying what Allah is saying and, and here's the, the, the most critical thing, and spending in Allah's cause, not just for your children. This would be better for you. And, nafs is the ways, all the ways that the self deceives you into being miserly and stingy. All the ways that the self, if the self says, well, you know, they don't really need my donation. That's shuh al-nafs. If the self says, well, I don't know if I can really afford this. That's shuh nafs If the self says, well, I need to build a nest egg for myself. That's shuh nafs If the self says, well, you know, I can only give what is beyond taking care of my children and my wife. That's shuh nafs Remember that it will not be an excuse in the hereafter. Well, I didn't do what I Islamically n- knew I should do because of my children and because of my husband or because of my wife. And how many wives were completely? I I once I think I once mentioned this. There was a Quran teacher I knew in Egypt who was a woman. She was a very she's a very very famous Quran teacher. Uh, in Egypt who uh, her isnad goes back all the way to the Prophet Um, and she had a condition, she would only teach women if they promised never to get married and she was very outspoken about this because she said every time I've accepted a female student once they got married it was all over for them and it's a sin I mean it's a sin upon the woman if you marry someone who's not allowing you to realize your Islam potential then you married the wrong person get out before you have children because once you have children things get complicated but it is not an excuse Oh, well, I love him. No, it's not an excuse. Of course, and the same applies to men as well. But it's usually men who suffocate the hell out of women. Not, you know, usually. But it's vice versa. It is, it, life is too serious to simply say, well, I've settled into a comfortable situation and just go with the flow. Life, is too serious and يوم التغاب as I'll tell you in a second is too serious for that type of formula because whatever situation you've settled yourself in it's a status and that status has a huge upheaval waiting for it when you come to the hereafter now, notice I put on the side for a bit, Fattakullah Mastatatum. The reason I did this is, look okay. it. So, translation is, let's see how, uh, So, reverence God as much as you are able. Okay. In Surah Ali Imran Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala says "Ittaqullaha haqqa tuqatih" Reverence God Revere God as God is due to be revered In Surah At-Taghabun it says "Revere God as much as you can" Muslim theologians posited this and said, well, is this contradictory? And some argued that one abrogated the other. Some said that revere God as much as you can, abrogated, revere God as God is due to be revered. And some said, no, it's the second one from Ali al-Imran that abrogated the Taghabul. But the school that I agree with is the third school that said neither of them abrogates the other. Because when Ali al-Imran says revere God as God is due to be revered to the extent you can. because Proper reverence to God in a perfected way is impossible. My aim must always be to be, be, as Ali Omran tells us, to revere God as God is due. But what my actual accomplishment ought to be is to the extent I can, meaning to the best of my ability. Okay, then إِن تُخْرِضُ اللَّهَ hasanan حَسَنًا يُضَاعِفُ لَكُمْ وَيَخْفِرُ لَكُمْ وَاللَّهُ شَكُورٌ حَلِيمٌ It is as if Allah is borrowing your wealth from you, but only to pay it back many folds in the hereafter. For many commentators this again was a point of pause because we know that the money that you owe, that you, that is given to you is not money that is actually yours. You don't own it. Allah entrusts you with this money. So, why does Allah say, I will borrow from you money that is not actually yours? And again because our ancestors used to take the Quran more seriously than we do They paused at this and they have discussions about this But the solution of course is not that difficult Is that it is out of Allah's extreme generosity that although this money is not yours and Allah entrusts you in it Everything you own is not yours And it is a trust given to you by God including your body but it is out of Allah's kindness and generosity and hilm as Allah Wallahu Shakur Halim. Allah is actually describes Allah's self as grateful and halim. Clement is yeah, Clement is a good way, good word for it. Halim Allah is this teaches you gratitude but teaches you by what Allah need not do because there is no obligation upon Allah and that is to say I, Allah, will be thankful to you thankful for you, to you for doing what is good for you not good for me and thankful for you that you let me borrow money that is not actually yours that, I, that you hold in trust for me but that's the nature of your God. That's the clemency and the benevolence of your God. Okay. And then, alim al-ghaibi wa shahada al hakim This is the God who knows everything in the world of the seen and unseen al hakim the most wise al alim al aziz um how did it, the mighty the aziz the, العزيز, the um, mighty um, noble beneficent aziz in, encapsulates all of this okay so let's take a step back now and say, what is what does Surah al-Taghabun does? We all know, as we said, Surah al-Taghabun could have simply come and solved this social issue about the late migrants and their ill-feeling towards the hostility of their families, it could have solved all of that by simply saying, forgive them, and moved on. But that would entirely miss the moral point. Because it wasn't just it wasn't just those people who had mothers and fathers and sisters and, chil- and, and children and whatever that were hostile to their migration. But there is a more fundamental issue, and that is the attitude of the persecuted people towards those who persecuted them. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows that 10 years down the road, the persecutors are going to be perse- defeated by the persecuted. And if Allah doesn't teach the persecuted benevolence and forgiveness now, This is not going to be a moral revolution. This is going to be like every other political revolution, full of vengeance and retaliation and vehemence and hate. And when the persecuted defeat the persecutor, there will be bloodshed. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala was creating a moral revolution. And it comes and says the following quite simply understand that the Lord has created a universe that glorifies the Lord. And it was the Lord's choice to create beings that don't glorify the Lord. It was God who gave them the choice. Not you, God. And if they choose not to glorify, it is their loss. But understand, their loss is no small thing. Of course, because life on Earth makes cho- sense only with the light that God gave human beings. It becomes a morally conscientious life, a purposeful life, a life about Haq. Nevertheless, it is to, uh, it is Allah who gave the choice. And if they turn away, even when turned away in rebellion against God and the Prophet and you, you're a messenger. Now, no question that some of the most difficult tests for those who want to live a morally conscientious life is their family members. By extension, you could say their friends. By extension, you could say anyone that they have the, you know, the hots for, passionate feelings for. No question that they have the ability to lead many people astray. And it is your responsibility to remain on the the righteous path. And not to say, my family led me astray. Oh, sorry, God, you know, I forgot everything I committed myself to because of my family. But, It remains the morally, the upright, the ethical thing to do that although you resist but you don't hate. You forgive. Notice three levels of forgiveness. You forgive, you forgive, you forgive. You don't Use the animosity as reason to free yourself of your ethical obligations towards these family members. And the biggest test, I forgot to say, the, the biggest test with family members is to spend when your family is telling you not to spend. Because if you are on the path, you would want to spend for God's path. Those who don't understand the path will say, why are you spending? Why are you giving your money away? That's one of the biggest tests. But, okay, so... And bear in mind, and this is the... the the is that... in the same way, notice... the the sacrifice of the Hizra was that you could have gone for especially people like Abu Bakr or or the like or you know the, the migrants who or Hamza, the Prophet's uncle, they might have gone from the top of the social ladder to as migrants, as displaced human beings, as now human beings starting from scratch like the, the migrants, because all the, all the ones who were prevented from doing hijrah by their family, their family was telling them, you're going to take us to the unknown. What is this? You're going to take us to Medina, an arid place that suffered from a civil war for a hundred years and with no livelihood. And you, you, know, What are you doing to us? So they were, well, bear in mind that the day that you have to worry about is the day where you will see people who lived enjoying their social prestige and their class on earth fall all the way to the bottom and those who sacrificed who made the right moral choices will rise all the way to the top and that is why it's Yawmut So the more basic moral lesson of Surah Al-Taghamun is tough moral choices. The toughest moral choices are the ones that you have to do, you have to take when it involves a husband or wife or parents or children. The toughest. But what justifies the toughest moral choices is your understanding of precisely what Yawm al means. And that's why you make these tough moral calls that might completely turn your family life upside down. Okay, let me make sure I didn't forget anything. Okay, Alhamdulillah. And that is Surah Tahab.
0: Alhamdulillah, where did you get that? I just I knew from our summary it's it's just about people being reminded of God's power. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
2: Come here again.
0: Alhamdulillah. you want to hear it again? Okay, sure. A Medinan surah that gets its title from verse nine. The surah opens with a description of God's power and knowledge. Um, In verses 1 to 4. The disbelievers are reminded of the end of those who disbelieved before them, and their denial of resurrection is strongly refuted. The believers are urged to be wary, but forgiving of the enemies they have within their own families, and warned to remain steadfast and to spend in God's cause. That's like cliff notes of cliff notes of cliff notes, (laughs) right? (laughs) Alhamdulillah, it was truly amazing, and it's just, I mean mind-blowing that and and you just you feel so grateful like how in the world I mean especially if you don't know Arabic if you don't I mean even if you just read this at where do you where how would you even be able to access any percentage of this learning so Alhamdulillah, thank you so much I mean just just no words Um, should we take a moment and um, take a break if anyone has questions please send them through the chat and uh, inshallah, we'll start the Q and A. Alhamdulillah, Subhanallah, Um, I, it, it, you know, I feel like a broken record because it just—it just feels like it's not enough to say thank you and how grateful I am. Because, um, you know, I'm sure I speak for other people too, um, especially for people who who just really find so much like comfort um, and peace and enlightenment in. You know, in just one surah. I mean, now we—this is the sixty-seventh surah that we've covered—and um, it, it's truly mind-blowing because that—you know—we've been doing them so quickly. We've been, you know, covering them so you don't really have, I think, a, a, an opportunity to fully, um, you know, absorb just the richness. But I just, I, I always have this sensation every time we're going through a halaqa and at the end it's like, oh my God, we were just given this incredible immersion into something so beautiful and so rich. Um, and, you know, it, again, it's mind blowing that n- nothing like this is available, you know, in, in the Muslim mainstream. And it's, it's so sad um, because it, just one Sura is so life transformative. It just touches your heart. It gives you a sense of, of anchor and peace and, and hope and, um, and connection to the divine um, in more than like any experience You know, before we were doing this. I don't think there was ever any place I could imagine um, where we would get even a, a fraction of this. So, I mean, I just oftentimes feel like, wow, you know, this is a small group of people, but it's almost like, what did we deserve? What did we do to deserve being able to be exposed to this at this time? You know. Um, okay, this is a silly analogy, but I just recently discovered like the brilliance of Hamilton, um, the musical. And there's this one part where, you know, they're talking about Alexander Hamilton and this is like this time when they're fighting um, for the independence of America and there's a song that says, you know, um, it's, it's amazing to be alive right now. Right. And like to have that feeling like right now, it's amazing to be experiencing and be alive right now to receive this again. Um, because I think the last time something like this was so incredible is the time that you were describing, you know, like understanding what the early Muslims were going through um, and how they received this message and how it transformed them and made them be willing to sacrifice everything. Um, And I feel like we just get a flavor of that now without the incredible challenge of receiving that message. I don't think I could have made it if I were an early Muslim receiving the message back then, it feels like it would be too difficult. But then receiving it now, with all the challenges we face, maybe it's less daunting because we know this culture that we live in, but um, it just doesn't change, you know, I'm just so grateful because when you have this knowledge, it gives you so much, um, I think, strength um, to be able to face challenges. So thank you, it changes the way you live and think and operate. um, for me, it helps me find a lot of peace and comfort in, in just the world of ugliness that we live in and in the world of injustice. So, thank you. Okay. Questions? Let's start with. Okay, you want to Kick off, Shaykh. Uh, verse 8. Verse
1: 8. Vickers,
0: verse 8. Verse uh, 8.
2: Thank you so much, Sheikh. Um, a number of times that, I've, as we've gone through other surah, I've had this kind of like thought that I don't know if it can be substantiated in any type of way, but I wonder whether um, just the style of the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala talks in some of these opening uh, verses, um, things like saying things like Allah knows of of that which you express and that which you contain, you know, within yourself. Uh, and he knows which all, all that goes on in, in, inside of you, whether you are aware of it or not, or whether it's a conscious thought or not, or things like no calamity will befall you but for Allah knowing that it, you know, or allowing for it to happen. Mm-hmm. And it's like in your approach, when you speak about kind of the feelings and the, the personal experience of these companions and believers, some I, I like my mind starts to wander and think about what it was like for them like what were they thinking like I can I can see like you know in in our modern sense like you know having a fight with your parents and slamming the door shut and then going and like you know putting your face in the pillow and saying God do you see what's happening like can you don't you like why would you ask this of me if this was supposed to happen like I did all the right things like I followed what you said like why wouldn't you get my parents to also come with me and why couldn't Mm. they just, you know, if they don't believe then why can't they just let me go and why why is everything so expensive and I can't do this and how am I supposed to like do all, you know, like, as if like in a way way of like but in a way of like, you know, complaining you know, whether it's like an expression that way or whether it's someone who's just kind of like robbed of all emotion because there's a type who just gets quiet and and freezes up and Mm -hmm. doesn't know what to do kind of And they say, are you okay? And they'll say, yeah, I'm fine. There's nothing wrong. Allah is, you know, saying, like, whether you say that you are okay or not is immaterial, because I know what's really going on. Is there any way of substantiating these types of, like, you know, hypothetical narratives?
1: Uh, well... Um, yes, but y- y- you, that's where a, a historian, is sympathetic historian, not, not a historian that is from outside the tradition trying to, um, trying to read the tradition for some point, some, some ideological issue that they have. Uh, a, a sympathetic historian who's reading from the systems of the knowledge and understanding the, the, the epistemologies of the medieval era, because there was a way that in for, in the medieval world that people would talk about their emotions. That's very different than the way we talk about our emotions. I mean, um, so you have a rep- one of the one of the the the, the treasure troves is poetry, um, but. Most moderns don't know how to read the even the poetry that was generated around the time of the Prophet or what the various ways of narrating but to come back to a point that you're making that when repeatedly you find that Allah says that I know what you Talk about. I know what you are concealing, but I mean sometimes it, it it's very explicit. Like when the the Allah comments about the woman who is complaining to God because she had a problem with her husband and she went to the Prophet والسلام, and she didn't get a solution, and then she said, she starts complaining to God, and Allah comes out and says, you know, I've heard her complaint but there are other times like in surah at-taghabun where it's clear that what allah is referencing is the social turmoil, the social debate, the 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 complex feelings of angst and hurt and confusion and and so and it's clear that when Allah comes, says, I, "I, know, I, I know." that Allah knows and hears everything. That Allah is basically telling these Muslims, "I'm present with you. I, I hear everything. I'm, and I'm responding to." And the, the um, and Surah Al is a good example because it's, a, it, it's a situation where you know you can see if you're if it's an intelligent historian could see layers so you have people that migrated late they come they're ostracized socially because they migrated late they are feeling angry But the way it's expressed in medieval narrative is that the medieval narrative will say they arrived late and they discovered that their fellow Meccans who migrated with the Prophet that they learned much more about religion than they did. That's a typical medieval way of saying they became ostracized. It is, but it's the way it's expressed is oh, they realize that other people knew much more than they do. And if you don't know how to read medieval narratives, you miss that point. And then there are other things. So, for instance, there's a report um, not authentic obviously, but um, uh, uh, that in which um, the Prophet is, is reported to have said that every child born has five ayat from Surah Al-Taghabun written on their forehead. It's, an, it's, a, it's a fabricated report, but what is the. But you pause and you think of narratives like that hadith like that what was why, why were they invented, why were they fabricated well it's clear that the impact of Surah At-Taghabun was such that people were, were interacting with it and they thought that this is so important a message that you understand that if you lose sight of thinking about your status in the hereafter and you become about all all about your status on this earth, then obviously what your wife or your husband or your children are going to demand is going to become the big end all and the beginning all and end all. It's going to be everything because after all, it's all about you know, make me safe here. Make me happy here. Make me t- well. Uh, but the way they it, the way they would articulate that is to invent a narrative that says, "Oh, every child born has five verses of Surah al Tahabun written on their forehead." Uh, so it, it is. We it, it, unfortunately, because Muslim history has been hijacked by. Orientalists and because we did not write our since since the age of colonialism we have not been the people writing our history and when we have attempted to write our history we were only uh, cheap counterfeit copies of Western scholars so typically You know, you get the scholar from Syria, from Egypt, from whatever. He goes to the West, gets a doctorate in Oxford, Cambridge, or whatever. And then he comes back and he's just writing in Arabic or in Persian or whatever. But he's copying his Orientalist uh, teachers. And so methodologically, he's no different than someone with a Western mind. So these types of questions that come from innately from within the tradition, such as what was the impact of the surah, how was it received? what were the emotions of people? These are the types of questions that a historian from inside the tradition asks, what you know, sometimes called the microhistory type approaches. and the, the, that careful, sympathetic, Empathetic, unpeeling of the layers of, of, and you're not telling history to condemn anything. You're not telling history to prove a point. To you're you're, you're trying to understand. Um, but no, you're 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 right that it is the the way that Allah talked. I mean and 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 I and I want to emphasize this, that it is was it, that Allah just didn't just talk to the first generation but Allah was talking to Muslims throughout because if you understood if you if you delved into into Allah's narrative you would start having the same emotions the same feelings the same levels of comfort you but you know Um, and, and I think that's what, you know, when, when, um, you, when you hear of, I was just talking to someone recently about how Islam reached India and the number of people who had to get on a ship or get on a camel on a long voyage to go, explore the Indian frontier, it, it was so the opposite of what the Bedouin culture of Arabia was accustomed to. The Quran is what came and made these peoples come to that realization. Well, for the sake of Islam, I'm going to go on a journey that takes nine months and be separated from my family and from everything I know and I don't even know if I'm ever going to come back or I'm ever going to see my family again, but it's worth it. What lit the fire under them? And you know, Western historians obviously do everything to resist the conclusion that it's the Quran. Muslim historians, imitate Western historians so they come up with stuff that's contradictory and and reductive and redundant and just derivative entirely and uh, unimpressive. And that's why you rarely find a work of history written in the Muslim world translated to English or French. But you find plenty of books that were written in French or English translated to Arabic or Persian or Turkish. That's the plight we're in. I mean, that's the. And then, on the on the midst of all of this, are people who have the wealth, who, you know, it, instead of spending in meaningful endeavors to incur serious scholarship, they waste their money, uh, thinking I'm earning a house in Jeddah by building a mosque or building you know a boutique little Islamic thing um, where there are no standards and no serious methodology or you know and so we, that that's the plight we're in well um, you know it's, it's you, you just pray that you do what you can, and then, you know, I'm, I'm praying that eventually enough Muslims will feel about this tafsir the same that grace, the way that grace does. Allah Ron, do you
0: have uh,
2: My question was just that, is there a reason why... Uh, partners and children are mentioned, but not parents, because you know I would imagine parents can sometimes be
1: a more difficult challenge um, and then yeah. Um, yeah, that's a good question. Uh, two two answers for this, because there were actually two two answers given. So, uh, you can
0: just repeat the question.
1: The question is why? Why are partners, as well mentioned, and children mentioned but not parents while um, often uh, parents are a more difficult challenge. Um, the first response is because parents are mentioned uh, elsewhere in the Quran when, if they if they uh, try to get you to disbelief in me or if they are um, basically in this type of hostile relationship that then don't obey them but be kind to them accompany them in kindness Um, so the first response given is because their parents are mentioned also in the Quran and it is an earlier revelation. Um, The other response given is that, it's an idiomatic response, that when you say, um, in, it's like, it would be translated something like your progeny, not just your children which would include parents and children. Um, These are the two main responses that I've read to that question. I think considering that there were parents like the famous um, story of um, I forgot his name now um, I'm blanking out the, the man whose mother told him, I'm not going to bathe, I'm not going to uh, eat. Musab ibn yeah. Omey. Uh, you know, Musab ibn Omey, where his mother says, I'm not going to eat, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to bathe unless you leave Islam. Um, and he tells her, You know, I would not leave this religion even if I saw you die in front of me. So it's clear that there were many examples involving parents. And both perspectives are probably right. I mean, one, the Quran does address it, does address parents. But, awlad idiomatically often meant parents and children, the entire relationship. So,
0: Anybody else? Um, I actually wanted to ask, um, you you said that if we were interested, we could raise this in the Q&A, which is um, understanding the relationship between beauty and truth.
1: Yeah. The reason I said that is that it is a, it it is a, um, um, there is a very, interesting discussion that usually starts out with a hypothetical what about a child who is born um who's not very attractive physically like you know maybe even a deformed child and the then there's then there's the, a discussion about what what when Allah says that Allah created you and beautified your form. And they say that it's like um, beauty in is that even if even if a child is unattractive that is still a beautiful form because beauty is not what is seen as aesthetically pleasing but what it, it has an umbilical relationship to what is just and what is right. So, when Allah made human beings, the um, the inheritors of the of the khilafah, the the vicegerents of God, and made the vicegerents and the bearers of the choice, of the emana, of the trust, erect on two feet, two legs, standing upright, that that became the form of haqq. And that is why it's beautiful. So it is not whether you subjectively think one form is beautiful or not but that there are objective standards created by allah to evaluate the relationship between beauty and truth and then it, it goes from there i mean the one who has written the most of course is qadi Jabbar in his in muhni but uh, he's the most advanced of any that I've read. Uh, but then, of course, you get people like, you know, Mullah Sadra, or, you know, who write things. Or, or, but that's basically the whole, and it's a very big field, obviously, as you can imagine. Okay.
0: Um, Last call here. No? Okay. We're going to move to the interactive group. Um, okay, so So um, I'm just going to read from here. So Omar has a question. Um, can the Sheikh explain the connection between truth and justice? I'm thinking, why would Allah not just describe the creation of the universe as in justice instead of in truth? Is the Quran saying that truth is entirely functional and the only relevant manifestation of truth is through justice? By having to explain truth through justice, it seems that truth is not self-evidently a moral good, but needs justice to explain its relevance or value in how or why God created the world.
1: Uh, that's that's a good question. Um, the, I mean, there, are, there are many possible answers, but I'll I'll go to what I think addresses the issue best uh, in this context is that the justice of creation is but a portion of the truth of creation. Um, Justice is a component so it is creation before human being what why do we need justice we need justice because human beings were given choice and with choice the issue of accountability but creation was, existed before human beings and because we don't really know but according to most theologians even after human beings we don't know what, what other what else Allah can create. Allah tells us that Allah can create things that we can't imagine and so on um So, I mean, for instance, dinosaurs, um, before human beings, the most theologians say dinosaurs existed in haqq, but they didn't need justice. And there will be no justice between dinosaurs because they never had volition. But it is the existence of dinosaurs glorifying God in their life in the same way that um, my in the same way that if anyone that has pets and you observe your pets and if you if you have the spiritual orientation you you see the many ways that your pets, through their life, glorify God. But is justice necessary for their haq, for that haq? No. Um, incidentally, because of that same question, some were, were so, in the medieval mind, um, it became so obsessed with this question between the relationship between justice and haqq that they, I mean, they, to, to cut to the, to, they, they invented reports and attributed them to the Prophet, alayhi which say that in the final day, um, every animal that ever wronged another animal will be resurrected. They will be judged. And then, right after they're judged, they will be made to vanish. Like, we go poof. And they they will be resurrected. So if an, if a dog bites a dog, then in the hereafter, then they'll both be resurrected so that God will say to the dog that, get the dog you were wrong you were right or you know you were an aggressor upon it but then they there's no heaven and hell for them and of course it's it's in the medieval it's a typically medieval way of trying to emphasize or underscore that no haq doesn't mean anything without justice but it's completely wrong um, of course haq can justice became necessary because of volition among human beings, but there is no reason to imagine that God, God's creation, is so limited to what is only relevant for human beings. Um, you know, try to imagine. Was you know if if God if God has created. Uh, beings from outer space, like UFOs and stuff like that. I don't know what type of justice exists among them. You know, I don't. But they—they they exist at Hak. They, they God created them. They have a right, so they exist. Okay. Thank you.
0: Um, okay, uh, question from uh, Rizwan. If a, if circumstances ari- arise where one must make a tough choice either to separate from a partner or detach from family, for example, and that tough choice is made emotionally instead of in good faith and ethically. How does one go about reconciling with the way in which they made that decision and its consequences even if it was the right decision?
1: Uh. I mean, of course, Surah Taqwa is really talking about Islamic I mean, when, when, especially if a marriage is a voluntary relationship, um, and it's the only relationship where you, you know, this whole thing about disowning your children or disowning your parents is very. A foreign concept I mean to Islam um, and part of sort of was was to you know to put a stop to, to that type of um, because in, in even if you even in cases where of, ext- of really egregious things where you cannot forgive, um, you still can't disown. So it is really that in marriage is where you enter into a voluntary relationship as opposed to non-voluntary. Anyway, so the, the issue is in this question, I'm not sure where the Islamic choices, you know, was it, was the choice between family and, and and a spouse is one led to a greater Islamic trajectory than the other? I mean, is it that the family was the problem with the Islam, for the Islamic path or the marriage was the problem for the Islamic path? Or perhaps both of them? do you know what I'm...
0: Yeah, um, maybe you can send a clarification in the chat and we can, yeah. we can, let's move on to the next question and then we can come back if, if we get okay. further clarification. Okay, um, so this is from Hada. Assalamu alaykum. I'm wondering whether any proposals have been made to address the issue that most of the people who pursue Quranic studies do so because they did not succeed in other fields and the issue that people who pursue Quranic studies just memorize Quran and Hadith as if that is all there is to knowledge. Have higher educational standards been set for aspiring imams and sheikhs?
1: No. No, this is part of the the biggest problem is that, um, you know, it used to be, it used to be, once upon a time, that um, the social status of a scholar of the Quran was so high that um that you know everyone would enter into the kutab where they are memorizing portions of the quran that wasn't the issue there were so many hafaz in society that hafaz was yeah a nice thing but it wasn't uh, anything But to actually be a scholar of the Qur'an, Quran, like Qurtubi, or like Razi, or like Al-Baghawi, or like when you study the the histories of these scholars of the Qur'an, you very quickly realize that they occupy the highest esteem and the greatest amount of training. It's not undergraduate level studies, it was graduate, but post postgraduate graduate studies. So um, people would write books on fiqh, books on theology, but they wouldn't dare write the tafsir until they have become a very senior scholar. It was like the... the, the and it's only those who have really proven their their, their seniority, their... Uh, that they're very accomplished would, if if some minor guy would start commenting on the Quran, there there was enough social awareness, People would laugh them. You know, no one would sit down to listen to them. Uh, it's like, who are you to be commenting on the Quran? That's something reserved for the big scholars, the greatest, most accomplished scholars. But you have to also understand that back. Pre-colonialism, it it was not the losers who entered into Islamic studies because Islamic studies all had endowments and had chairs and had many universities, very competitive. And it wasn't acceptable that just someone would, you know, declare, go into some local mosque and say, I give the khutbahs, I lead prayers, so I am a great imam. no, there were academic positions. Uh, in, in, people who led prayers, imam in mosques, no one considered them authorities. It was only those who studied at universities and occupied chairs in universities, and people like, you know, like Imam Jouani or uh, Imam al-Ghazali or so on. Um, that completely changed in the, in the modern world Part of what the transformation that took place with colonized societies is that, um, it's a long story, but basically, it's uh, people that were involved in the empirical, all prestige became associated with empirical sciences. And seminaries, theological schools, Sharia schools, uh, only attracted um, one people from the lowest classes of society. So, in other words, the most the poorest classes, usually from rural areas, and second, uh, usually not the most promising uh, students because the standards of competition within these fields and increasingly Islamic knowledge. Became rote memorization. The whole idea of before you become a scholar, you had to study mathematics, you had to study astronomy, you had to study philosophy, you had to study medicine, you had to study sort of like a, a potpourri of, of all sciences. It, it became thing, something of the past, and it became just um, you memorize a book of grammar, you memorize this you memorize that you memorize and um, and of course you know that you don't need intelligence to memorize i mean there are a lot of people who memorize but can't analyze anything and these standards unfortunately were transmitted even to a worse level in islam in the west Um, because in at least in islam in muslim countries you still have um you know people who enter into islamic studies because of commitment and the, and it's and they're usually you know of strong educational backgrounds um but if you look at immigration patterns um the people that managed to immigrate with their islamic islamness into the west were usually those who didn't immigrate to the west for any islamic causes usually those who immigrate to west for economic reasons and islam was just a a, a cultural identity and and of course with the role of educational institutions in places like saudi arabia or mauritania or even azhar unfortunately after azhar became wahhabized or became taken over by saudi money uh, in educating even converts in the west it kept all the standards so suppressed so substandard and that's the situation we're in um I mean, I, I'll tell you, I, there, I, I won't name names because this guy exists. Uh, there's a guy who I discovered um, who've written an intelligent dissertation, published an intelligent book, and when I, when I read what he's written, I thought, "Wow, this guy is smart. Uh, it, it published the book in, in, in a good academic press. And then I saw where this guy works and he works in, in an Islamic institution. So I thought, well, maybe my impression of this Islamic institution is wrong. So I communicated with this guy and he told me that not a single person where he works can even understand what he's written in his book. <laughs> and not a single person where he works has even read his dissertation, that he feels extremely lonely, that there isn't a single person that can have a conversation with him about the doctrines or the scholars that he's written about. And of course, as would be expected, his one big hope is that I help him get a job in an academic, secular institution so he can leave the, where he works behind. And it, it breaks your heart. It just, it broke my heart. You know, it, it just, yeah, that's the reality we live in.
0: Okay, um, we, we got a little bit of a clarification or just a, a simple, from, from Rizwan, on going back to the last question. Yeah. Um, just a simple example. If one separates from one's partner but does so filled with contempt, resentment, and anger after the separation, does that one have an obligation to address the ill feelings that exist?
1: Um, listen, you know, of course, the Quran says, uh, the, the advice of the Quran is that. When people separate, they should separate beautifully in all circumstances, but I've been involved in a lot of divorce cases um, in my other hat as a lawyer, Um, and some spouses you know when they when someone says to me is Islamic thing that I go and apologize or I go and have try to establish a decent relationship and I say no the Islamic thing in this case is for you to move on and to completely close this chapter of your life. Um, The reason is that unfortunately uh, some relationships are so toxic that you perpetuate the cycle of abuse and mutual abuse if you don't get away as far away as possible from the toxicity as possible so if your former if someone's former spouse is a decent human being that is willing to speak decently and and actually cares about um, Islamic morality, and you can reason with them, and you can. Then yes, then the the beautiful course of behavior is, is always preferred, uh, you know the Hassan. But if it's going to open the door for poison um, and abuse. And cycles of abuse because I've seen so many of these. You know, I, I've and usually, it's the the nicer person who ends up being abused, uh, male or female. And it's usually the nicer person who's starting to have you know starts feeling bad about leaving things badly. Um, and I I've just quite honestly told um, people. Um, move on, just move on, heal. Maybe there will be a time to mend bridges and become friends, but not until you get yourself in order, not until you know who you are and what you want and what went wrong, Um, because when we are old, when we are weak, and discombobulated um it's very easy to perpetuate cycles of abuse and 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 there's nothing pleasing to Allah in that i I mean um, yeah you know not knowing anything about anything of the situation you described that's just my general advice from the what practical life has, has taught me. Um, and I've given that advice to both men and women. And it's usually the nicer side that asks me that question, by the way. It's usually the, the nice person that says, well, you know, should I have... Uh, the, the, the side that's mean usually doesn't care how they leave things.
0: Okay. On that note, thank you so much again for an incredible halakah. Thank you, everyone, for joining and being with us. Um, this is always my favorite part of the week. I um, hope you have a wonderful rest of the weekend, and inshallah, we will see you on um, either Tuesday or Wednesday. We'll, we'll be and let people know. So. Oh, okay. And last thing, just a reminder. So this surah has not been adopted. So if anyone would like to sponsor the publication of this surah, please do. And there, there are a lot more too that. Um, this is such a special project. I, I really, you know, um, want to thank everyone who has already, you know, who's already a part of this project, and encourage people to join because I just there's nothing but, but blessing with this and, and helping people um, understand, you know, God's God's book. And we're we're hard at work to um, get get this text, you know, prepared for publication. And um, so we need lots of prayers, love, and support. And I know that inshallah, when this, this comes out in book form. Um, Inshallah, it'll be really special. So, anyway, yeah, Inshallah, Inshallah. So, thank you so much, everybody, and um, have a great rest of the weekend, and we'll see you soon, Inshallah. Shalom. Shalom.